Hey there, and welcome to the Oscars Death Race podcast, where we try to watch all the Oscar-nominated movies, or die trying. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. Hope you're doing well out there. What you're about to listen to is an interview I conducted with director Austin Lee Bunn of the short film Campfire for the third annual Academy of Death Racers Film Festival. In Campfire, a married dairy farmer travels to a gay campground in rural northeast Pennsylvania to search for the man he fell in love with 30 years before, and discovers that the past is not quite done with him yet. In this interview, I talked to Austin about where the sword film came from, the logistics of filming in an operating clothing optional campsite, and his decision to make Campfire a hybrid narrative documentary sword film. We also dig in a bit more into his past body of work, including the sword film In the Hollow and the feature-length film Kill Your Darlings, which starred Daniel Radcliffe and Dane DeHaan as founding members of the Beat Generation literary movement, and how he has a passant for writing about queer and counterculture themes set in nature, contrary to most typical depictions. Campfire is currently playing alongside 60 other sword films at the Academy of Death Races Film Festival from January 5th through the 21st. Tickets are still available at the time of this interview going live, so be sure to tune in to check out all of the sorts, including nine sorts shortlisted for the Academy Awards. Check it all out, including Campfire, while you still can at aodr.net, linked below. And be sure to tune into the Academy of Death Racers YouTube channel for more illuminating interviews with other directors and filmmakers. Without further ado, let's dive into the Spoilerville interview with Austin Bunn. So joining me uh, is the director, writer, producer, everything of the uh, sort film uh, Campfire, which is a special presentation film for the Academy of Death Racers uh, Film Festival. Uh, Austin Lee Bunn, uh, he is the associate professor at Cornell in the Department of Performing Arts and Media Arts, um, as well as the director of, Mil- of Milstein Program in Technology and Humanity there. He has a number of sort films um, and also a feature film as well, which he co-wrote called Kill Your Darlings, which uh, featured a um, Daniel Radcliffe and Dane DeHaan. Um, he has, like I said, multiple sort films. He's done screenplays, pilots, uh, audio audio uh, monologues, fiction, nonfiction. Um, he's done it all, basically, and he's, we're, we're honored to have him for this Q&A for the Academy of Death Racers Film Festival. Thank you for joining us, Austin. Paulo, happy to be here. All right, so let's just go ahead and just hop straight in talking about Campfire. So why don't you tell me, how exactly did this project get started? Campfire begins as a documentary. So I had this idea to make a documentary about this gay campground that exists in Northeast Pennsylvania, North of Scranton. Um, There are about 30 some gay campgrounds around the country. Some of them are LGBT, It sort of depends. And they were a phenomenon of the eighties, really eighties and nineties as kind of refugee or sanctuaries for people from the cities dealing with HIV and AIDS. Um, the campgrounds still exist and they still thrive. Um, there are new ones opening every year. It's a little bit of a, a kind of a phenomenon. And this one outside of Scranton called Hillside is near where I live. I am in Ithaca, teaching at Cornell, as you mentioned. And I found myself really drawn to the place. It's full of characters. These are people who decide to sometimes buy an RV or rent. Um, and the RVs are parked in the woods. There's something like about 300 maybe uh, permanent residents who, who go to the campground over the summer. Um, in the era of COVID and remote work, some people just stay there. It's almost like a summer home in the, in the mountains. So I had started going, meeting all these people. I decided to make a documentary in the spring of 2022. And then in about June, I had already started. I was underway in production. 
And I was doing all these interviews, but to be really honest, Paolo, I didn't know what the story was going to be. I couldn't figure out how to shape a narrative out of this parade of really interesting people. And uh, I got this weird phone call from this man who introduced himself as a friend of my father's when they had been in the military together in the late 50s. My dad was in the Air Force. He worked on this uh, top, top security base in Louisiana called Bozer Base. And this man said to me, listen, you know, your, uh, your dad and I were lovers for two years while we were in the military in the Air Force. Now, I should tell you, like, my dad died in 2018. This isn't really a conversation I could have with him. The only way the man found his way to me was because he had read my dad's obituary. But he, he wanted somebody to know that this had happened. And I had a lot of mixed feelings. I have a brother and a sister. They didn't even believe me that they thought this guy was maybe lying for some reason. But um, I decided to put that those questions that I had kind of into the movie. And a story shaped itself out of some of the stories I had heard from men who had gone to Hillside, guys who had been married. It's in a really agricultural rural area. So you see a broad uh, range of people there, some guys from the city, some people from agricultural communities around that area. And I decided to sculpt a story, a composite, basically, character from uh, the men I had interviewed. And he is a person who is in search of a long lost love. And that gave me a way to braid together all the interviews that I had done into some kind of story shape. So that's the biography of it. And then I shot the film in the summer of 22 in August, spent the fall, last fall, editing it and, uh, you know, took it to film festivals this this year, this spring and through the summer. Wow, that is uh that is quite the story, right? Especially kind of like this from beyond the grave, right? Kind of like like ghost almost, right? So, you know, I was gonna ask, right? Um, you know, I, I was gonna ask, you know, your a lot of your passwords have kind of veered in that in between, right? Of some have been full documentaries, some have been more narrative based on documentary. This this veers that line and kind of you answered my, my question I was gonna have of you know, was this based on a true story? It sounds like not a one specific story, but but kind of like that aggregate story, like you said, especially tying back to, to, to your father. Yeah, you know, people have commented on that quite a bit, especially at festivals. I had this one German woman saw the film and came out of the screening and said, you know, I found your film really irritating. And I think what she meant was thought provoking, um, it, partly because of that blend of fiction and nonfiction in the movies. I, I was a journalist for about a decade after I graduated from college. I worked as a magazine journalist. I've always really loved journalism and nonfiction. So I, I found myself as I moved into film thinking about true stories and wanting to work with true stories. So Kill Your Darlings, like you mentioned, you know, is a true story. It's based on a true story about the Beat Generation writers. And the short docs that I've made have have uh, you know explored this, as you said, kind of in-between place. Um, in the Hollow is a film about a, sh a shooting on the Appalachian Trail. And I used really extensive recreations, almost, I called them conjurings, which might be a little pretentious. But the idea being, they weren't supposed to be like a lifetime movie, like flash cut to an act of violence, but really had its own narrative shape and catharsis in it. And um, I have to say, I really enjoy editing. So um, I am finding myself, <clears throat> as I'm making the film, starting to think about how are these things going to contact each other and what, how will they connect? One of the things I'm most proud of in, in Campfire is you're, you're watching this narrative film, then you see some documentary elements, and then things start to get even increasingly blurry. Like we, start, we started shooting a fictional element during a non-fictional real party most of the actors are non-actors who are just guys at the campground and then at the end of the film some of the characters from the documentary come into the fiction film in a way that uh hopefully feels uh delightful and unexpected so 
Yeah, I should say that I just find there's a lot of interesting terrain there. There are a number of other filmmakers working in this area. Uh, you might know Robert Greene. Um, I don't know if Procession was nominated for an Oscar, but it's an amazing documentary that's on Netflix. Casting John Bonet also is great. Uh, uh, Kelly Green's uh, documentary about the John Bonet murder. Um, and and others, of course, Nomadland is probably my my primary point of contact as okay. Death Racers. You guys might be familiar with that Oscar winner from a few years ago, where it was a, a character set in a real environment with real people, and that that uh, Chloe Zhao's like interest in blending these forms was really inspiring to me. Right, it, it, it's what they say, right? There's always a, a grain of truth in every fiction, and then sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction. Sometimes, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, I ha- I haven't seen all of those films. I'll definitely I'll definitely make sure to go check those out. Um, one thing that I was curious, right? So you mentioned that they were all, you know, they were non-actors. You know, I I looked up Hillside, right? When I when I saw it in the film, it's oh, it's like a real campsite, like you mentioned. Um, were there any logistical issues with you know filming? I know it's a clothing optional site, yeah. so there were like special special like logistical directing things you had to get cleared in order to able to film in there yeah paulo i'm glad you asked that's a, a really good question um so the campground has had this long-standing policy against cameras uh, for good reasons you know partly that's about privacy people who went there wanted to be able to just kind of be themselves and self-express and not feel self-conscious and so uh cameras are, are forbidden on the other hand times have changed the campground's been around a long time pretty much everybody's got a cell phone with a camera on it. So there is a lot of photography happening there and filming going on. And the campground itself makes everybody sign a form as you enter that permits the campground to use uh, to do some photography and filming for their own purposes. And when I started to negotiate around making the documentary, I met with the primary camp administrator, whose name is Wayne. He's in the film. He, uh, he was obviously concerned, but we were able to agree that that the way that people have to sign this form gave me permission to, you know, I wasn't trying to make a tell all about the, the campground. I was trying to show it what, what it's like there. So he saw an alignment and an opportunity to let me do the photography and filming. Um, there's one, there's one funny irony here too, Paolo. I would say that when I started filming the documentary with a, uh, with a cinematographer from New York, Rand Rosenberg, who was great. Um, people were really resistant. Like if we showed up at the pool where we were just walking around with the camera, people were not excited to see it. They sometimes felt like they might be exposed. A lot of people there are still in the closet or maybe, you know, feel like this identity of being a gay person is very private to them. They don't want to be, they don't know what I'm going to do with this footage. But then when I started making a fiction film and hanging the documentary material off of it, people were totally fine. They were totally fine to be naked on screen and totally fine to show up at the party. So I think being in a fiction film gave them permission to sort of say, oh, well, I'm just playing a character. Like, this isn't actually me. And uh, that was very freeing and in a way was partly the success of the story. It just allowed me to um, think about it. You guys, I'm telling a fictional story. Don't worry. I'm not uh, I'm not trying to, you know, get you in trouble at all or, you know, get you in trouble at work or something. So, yeah, that's how that worked out. Yeah, did you have to go back and like, you know, get let people know that, hey, like you're in this cut basically or like the like, logistics of all that? So I think I've made enough films at this point that you you learn you've got to get people to sign, uh, you know, uh, agreements uh, to let you put them on screen before they're on screen. Okay. Um, that helps a lot. So all the documentary material, people signed away the permission for me to use their likeness. Okay. Then there were some group scenes where um, we put up filming signs. So anybody who showed up theoretically saw that sign and therefore was giving permission by being present. Um, 
And then the last part of that was we filmed on some public events like the, uh, there's a big party that happens every year at Hillside called Illumination Weekend. And I decided to set the, we did production during that weekend because I knew that party would happen and we would put it in the film. And because that was at night and people are filming with their cameras all over the place, it really wasn't nearly the same issue. And it's also a night of, of performance. People are you know, doing shows and there's a pole dancer in the middle of the woods. So they, they don't mind being observed. It's like, that's what they're doing it for. Um, and so that, so there were like three different modes that I had to kind of walk. Sometimes it was, we had to let people know in advance. Sometimes we got them to agree and show up and, you know, play a role. And then lastly, sometimes people were just performing and, and they were totally comfortable with being on screen. Yeah. Being filmed. So, so you mentioned, right? Like, you know, obviously some people, you know, they're not out necessarily. And that, that's kind of like the main character here played by I think Mark Rowe, right? Who's yeah. straight from, from, from that's straight right. Thing. Um, you know, and, you know, his character is one who's not out, right? He has a family, it seems like, right? He's a dairy farmer, has a family. He's not being entirely truthful with them where they are at, 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 at during this weekend. Um, you know, what was, you know, obviously this ties back, I think, I, I would guess that this ties back to perhaps your father, right? How he, you know, you didn't really know this about him until after he had passed. Um, so, you know, and then the other thing I found interesting was obviously, right, there are, you know, like he goes to the the man store, right? Which I believe is an actual store on there. Yes. He buys the harness, right? And then he gets angry at some point. He was like, this is all about sex for you guys, right? So he's obviously not in the lifestyle quite as much. And he's still grappling with his own, you know, homosexuality or LGBTQ-ness, right? Um, you know, how what how did that character more develop, right? Like, what was the choice? Because at the end, he doesn't, I'm not quite sure if he's made peace with, you know, his past, right? Um, he's just going back to living a closeted life again. You know, maybe that, again, ties back to your father. What, what are your thoughts about, like, that character? And then how did you get, you know, Mark to, to give that type of performance? I appreciate the question because a lot of people at the campground had questions about who this guy was and was he gay or was he, you know, like a straight dude who was just kind of on safari or something? Um and as you can imagine, the campground is a place where uh, people go to explore who they are. They're, they're there to like look for partners, but a lot of them are just there to experience, you know, summer in the woods, you know, for a lot of gay people, gay and lesbian people, the woods became just kind of off limits. I mean, that's a combination of the, what they call metro, metro normativity, right? That if you're a gay person growing up in a small town, you try to get to the cities. The cities are where you're going to find your boyfriends, your girlfriends, it's where you're going to live your life and, and be able to meet other people who are maybe not homophobic. Um, but that has meant that a lot of gay people and lesbian people are kind of had to leave behind nature in the woods, right? And, and leave behind the land. And one of the things I've loved about Hillside and, and maybe even the other films that I've made show these, give you vistas of this kind of rural gay and lesbian identity where small town life and rural life that's much quieter that's much more about family can still be capacious and it, and allow for all the diversity of people's orientations and identities. You know, you can think about that in so many different ways or along racial lines or class lines and anyhow. So, but the character uh, of Carl, the main character in the film, like I was saying, a lot of people at the camp campground were like, what is his deal? Mark Rowe uh, often plays fathers and, uh, you know, cops on television he he's had a really great career in, in as a cameo and special guest star in many tv shows but he's a gay person he's often mistaken for straight so that was one of the reasons i cast him because i, I wanted someone who would almost have moved in the world as a father figure now he's a grandfather uh and no one would ever think about him maybe in a gay context 
the other element that was really important to me about his character is he's really a romantic. So I think a lot of people expect that if you go to a gay campground in the woods, it's kind of a giant sex party. And definitely for some people who go to Hillside, it is. Um, I know for myself, like I started going there before I made the film. I really enjoyed it there probably because I was a Boy Scout and I just like camping and I like being outside and sitting in a fire. That's like a great way to spend my summer and to be around other gay people who I, yeah, I live in a small town. I live in Ithaca. Carl is what I think of as a romantic. He is somebody who is looking for this love from his past that was so pure and, uh, and of course was also a love that kind of went away from him, got away from him. He, he was invited to come to Hillside with this long ago lover that he's looking for. Um, and he said no, because he was scared. He was probably 26, you know, and just thought, why would I ever do that? That's like crazy. I would put my life at risk. Well, now he's regretting that decision. And so he's come to find him. And that quest narrative is, is a very romantic quest, right? He's like almost searching for this person from the past in the present. And the movie, you know, in a way plays with that, right? You, you kind of get the sense that there's this, uh, he's looking for a guy named Marty Cardona and he shows up and there's this sense that, oh, well, Marty's really changed. Like Marty's no longer this like super handsome uh, romantic guy that he met on this farm. No, he's now become this like leather daddy who is holding this giant party and poor Carl has to feel like he's got to almost uh, turn himself into somebody he's not just to meet Marty where he is now. And that was one of the kind of comedic sleight of hands that I play in the film is to sort of show these different sides of gay sexuality through uh, Carl's almost imagination and his his quest. Yeah, no, that that totally makes sense. And you know, I definitely appreciate it. I was going to you, you it's almost like you're asking my questions, answering my questions before I ask. I was going to ask about like, you know, a lot of portrayals like you mentioned of of LGBTness in in media tends to be, you know, very very um, you know, uh, city centric, right? Like think about Rent, for example, here in, in New York or, you know, anything based out in in LA, in SF, LA, Berkeley, right? folk. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it kind of reminds me of that. Uh, there's that Key and P, uh, Key and Peele skit of you know, like the the there's like the you know the um, one of them plays like the very flamboyant you know homosexual, and then um, he he's like your 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 um, like your uh, discriminatory is like oh he actually I'm he, he's not an asshole he's not he's not a bigot I'm the asshole basically like that <laughs> that, that kind of a, that that's it kind of reminded me of that to some degree right there's like well there's a I, you might remember there's a moment in Campfire when as you talked about Carl is experiencing some serious disappointment he's lashing out at the guys that he's meeting for just being like out only about sex and he you know rushes out of this party in a kind of dramatic way and the response of the guys at the party is to applaud him. Like he just gave some diva performance on stage instead of it being really genuine heartbreak. And that's one of my, that's a fun moment in the movie for me. I did write that moment, but, um, but you know, when you get with real people, cause all those guys at the party are just guys at camp who are willing to be in the movie. They had their own ways that they wanted to add to that and eye rolls and uh, you know, just the, the funniness about uh, gay life can be pretty ironic about emotion. Yeah, but but going back, right? So you know, I was also a Boy Scout, right? And and one of my family's traditions is, you know, we always go back to. I, I'm from Florida, right? So I always go back to my parents for Florida. We've we've gone camping every Thanksgiving for like the last 
decade plus. Oh, um, wow. Also, Boy Scout related reasons. Um, had okay. to get those camping nights in to get the Eagle Scout. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, again, it's very, it's very cool that there's and that that there's a lot of in this this representation you have of kind of like the more rural nature side, right? And you know, again, it goes back to your other films, right? Not only like you know, Lavender Hill, right, was one of the ones you did, like one of your early films, the same year you did um, Kill Your Darlings, so it, which was a more straight up documentary about this LGBT commune um, in New York, right? And then you know, again, you mentioned In the mm-hmm. Hollow, right, that takes place yeah. in the Appalachian Trail, you know. Yeah. Is there something again specific about nature in general, right? Not just you know specifically like LGBTness in nature, but just like nature in general that you like that you like uh, filming up in. You know, uh, many people have asked me that, Paolo, because this spring I did a, a screening. I was invited to do a screening of three of my short films mm-hmm. because they were all about almost LGBT people in nature and in the wild, and we called it out here. And people asked me like, why? What is it that's drawing you to this material? And I'll admit that I don't know totally. I don't really have an answer except to say that I live in a pretty rural upstate area and it's always been a, a, a value of mine to grow where I'm planted. I mean, this is where I live. So these are the stories that I'm hearing. And I'll also offer up that for other filmmakers who might be listening to this, you know, nature in the wild provides a lot of z- like production value for zero cost, right? You get, you get vistas, you get depth, you get uh, threat, you get great light. And so if you're willing to brave it and making in the hollow required sleeping on a cabin off the Appalachian trail with no electricity and no bathroom, um, if you're willing to risk it and brave being outdoors, uh, I think they're really beautiful films. I've always been really drawn to people who are able to make wonderful kind of nature driven documentaries or films. Um, Nomadland, good example. Um, It's almost set inside an RV, but the rest of it is outdoors. She's in national parks and uh, spending time with other people, beautiful twilights. I mean, that movie seems to be shot almost entirely at magic hour. I don't know how they did it. Um, so that's funny, Paolo, about you and Boy Scouts and, and camping. So your family goes camping on Thanksgiving, you said. Yeah, so it was that my uh, so my, my dad's a doctor, right? So he didn't really have a lot of time off on the weekend. So you know, in order to get the so many so many nights camping, to get the camping merit badge or whatever, um, you know, the the weekend he would get off that was that was long enough for like an extended time out would be the Thanksgiving weekend. And before that, it. it's too hot to go in the summer, right? So like the, like the late late th- late late November is kind of like the perfect time, and it just kind of started with just us, and then we started getting another couple more Filipino families to join us, and yeah, it, it's cool. become a whole thing over the past couple of decades. You know what's really interesting too that um, well, first of all, I think that's an amazing story. You know, I think there's also something about fathers and sons, and also men in the woods together. Like that's just so primal for me as a former Boy Scout, but also just generally, you know, chopping wood or setting up camp, um, and the the spirit of that like uh, bonding that happens when you're kind of physically challenged, or in this case, you know, he doesn't know anybody at this giant campground. It's very hard, I think, for men to to socialize and, and kind of step outside their comfort zone and much rather be just by themselves, you know, making a fire, which there is a scene in the movie where he's just making a fire. That's kind of all he has to do. Um, I, I definitely related to that feeling. Just, just make a fire. It's, it'll all be good. Um, yeah. Though I will say, as I've gotten a little bit older, and as my folks have gotten older, we've done the, we've, we've maybe started to like, oh, we'll go out to the campsite, but then half of us will go home for the night to sleep in the mattress. Um <laughs> You live I, in New York City, you said, right? I live in New York City, yes. Um, so it's it's kind of challenging. There's not that much camping even that close, yeah, right? Not you even kind of have to, to go, to go back to my my folks in Florida. Um, 
I did mention I did notice another theme throughout your works, right? So obviously we, we kind of talked about there's there's this LGBTQ there's this there's this nature theme, um, yep. and also a bit of a LGBTQ intersection. But there's also right like for example your film Ascent, right? It, it's not oh, yeah. a, uh, LGBT, but that's you know tied to the the Redwood um, yeah. protests, and yep. then Ghosts, right? Which you oh, know yeah. Jeffrey Palmer was about the Kiowa boys who yeah. fled the fled the school. So you know again you know there's obviously there's there's some element of you know. To some degree, being LGBT, right, in mm. society is uh is 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 against the norm still to some degree, right? It's it is some sort of counterculture to some degree, yeah. um, and even you know as even uh um you know uh kill kill your darlings, right, ties mm-hmm. to the beat explicitly so, right, explicitly yeah. so. So again, what about what? Separate from the the nature stuff, what about what draws you to make films about you know counterculture specifically, right? Even if it's mm. outside of the LGBT specific space. What I'll say here is, and by the way, Paolo, you're doing a great job, man. I feel so, I feel so appreciated. Like you went and watched all these and, and know about them. Um, short films don't get a lot of love, you know. It, it's it's wonderful to share them with friends, but you know they don't. Uh, it's not like a feature film that will be potentially have a big premiere and a red carpet. You know, you don't. It, unfortunately, they don't really have that same traction. So I, I really genuinely thank you guys on the death race trying to watch all this stuff and appreciate it all. I find myself really drawn to making uh, films and telling stories about uh, experience, meaning like the nature of experience, powerful experiences, characters going through transformational or cathartic uh, moments in their life. I think that's just what I'm drawn to as a storyteller. So you mentioned Ascent, which is uh, a a short film about a, a young woman who climbs a redwood tree, and you don't really understand why and really until the end. And that I should say was a, uh, a kind of t- a piece of camera test for a feature film script that I had written that was about a, a young woman getting stuck on one of these tree sit platforms in a redwood tree and how she survives uh, because she has no rope to get down. So it's, it's really like a survival tale, like castaway set 200 feet in the, in the air up on the tree. So that was a story that's a pure experience. I've, I've always been a fan of movies like that, that are survival tales. All is lost might be a good example or, or buried or something. Uh, single single character. Uh, otherwise, like with ghosts and some of the other, like Kill Your Darlings might be connected here. Uh, having been not just a journalist, but I, I'm really interested in the kind of history and the pressures of what it's, the pressures that characters and humans experienced before us that maybe we don't have now, but we can learn a lot from their response and their survival and resilience. So Kill Your Darlings is about really ultimately what we would call now a hate crime. Um, uh, then was called a gay panic defense. Mm-hmm. And the fact that one of my favorite writers, Allen Ginsberg, who himself became a real model of what it means to be a gay person in life, was involved with trying to help defend and help uh, exonerate the guy who had done the killing, the guy who claimed this gay panic defense, just seemed so like rich and ironic to me that I, I had to work on that. That was a, a story that I had been thinking about for a long time. And my college roommate, incidentally, John Krakitis had gone to NYU film school. And when he graduated, he was looking for a feature film to, to, to make. And so we started working on that script uh, really in 2004. It took us like, geez, six or seven years to really get it financed and get it made. It took a long time. Then, um, and with Ghost, a similar story. Uh, Jeff Palmer is my colleague here at Cornell, a wonderful documentarian, Kiowa himself. And he had this idea for a story about the past and, and these boys who, uh, you know, decided that they would, uh, would rather be free and risk dying than to live underneath the, the thumb of, 
uh, at that time, a very white conservative culture that was trying to convert them into upstanding Americans. And that is also a feature film concept. We have a script for it. And Jeff is trying to raise the money for it because that story just continues to unfold. It's really, it's a, it's an amazing like adventure tale really for, for young people. It's like about, you know, I think it's 15, 12 and nine years old are the three main characters in ghosts. Yeah. They said the, at the end of the film, it was like, that's a story for another day. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, speaking of right, I, I did want to ask one quick question about Kill Your Darling. How like so was that your first film you actually worked on? Um, or, so or yeah, you- it was the first okay. produced film I'd made. You know, I did make films in high school yeah. that were not very good. I did just get no them converted no from VHS. No one counts those. No one counts those yeah. exactly. Um, and then when I was in college, I started writing feature screenplays. I've always been really drawn to film and, and all kinds of writing. But I didn't have any friends who went into the film business. I graduated from college in the 90s. There weren't that many, you know, cameras weren't that cheap. Um, nothing like today. And so I just didn't have a lot of friends who went into film. So I kind of, that sort of dream dwindled a little bit until, like I said, my college roommate went to NYU's film school. And then we started getting into film. And having that film made really did change my my life and my career. I was able to work with different producers and have an opportunity to kind of really see how that industry works. And course go to amazing film festivals and see amazing films um and yeah so i mean i I feel very lucky that that was my first experience was a movie like that that i had had was so close to you know it wasn't it's not a very commercial film it's not like i wrote it to sell it was a passion project that was made on a nickel you want the international days of war war that at venice so i mean Don't yeah, that was that was pretty nice. We're pretty yeah, lucky. Pretty nice. There are lots of great stories though about you know great films like that. Like I mean, Past Lives would be an example this year. Mm-hmm. I really hope it ends up getting nominated for best film or best script because it's amazing. And it's that filmmaker's first film, first time directing. Uh, for it's what it's worth, have I, have it, I have it on my prediction list for 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 getting a nomination this year. Um, but going back to kill you to kill your darling, right? So yeah. you know, how, what's the difference between working on this big, you know, feature length film that you said took six years to make versus you know something like like Campfires? Now that you're what ten years or more into like your film career, right? Yeah. Like how like what's the difference between those two, and especially as you've gotten more mature in your career? Well, the main thing, Paolo, is that I'm directing now, right? So yeah, uh, when I was a screenwriter on Kill Your Darlings, which was a, a great experience, John was a very inclusive director. Um, I was a part of the edit and, uh, you know, we, we just, we were just constantly talking about it, trying to make it as good as we could, but I wasn't directing. And I, I started to see, like, I met other directors and I could see that many of them had great training technically, but they knew, I mean, it was always strange to me that screenwriters would write a script and hand it over to somebody else when you spent all the time building it up and creating the world. And you give it to somebody else who has no real relationship to it, except they want to make it. That didn't make a lot of sense to me. So I started making my own work. And, and as you know, uh, making a documentary is a lot easier than making a uh, fiction film in some ways, because you don't have to worry nearly as much about the acting talent, the production value. You know, you can you can work with cameras that are a little bit less, uh, you know, souped up and you're not going to be necessarily having to recolor everything. You don't need to worry about costumes and props, et cetera. So documentary has been this like kind of gateway drug for me. And then as you've seen, like my career, I keep kind of making more and more narrative, adding more and more narrative into the documentary as I'm kind of building up the confidence. And my goal is to really, within the next couple of years, direct a feature film. And the challenge there, though, which is it's kind of fun to talk to somebody like you who you do see a lot of films, the film industry is so is still really evolving radically. And that independent film world that I knew and came up with in New York City yeah. is really changing, right? Like, 
in the era of streamers, you just don't see. I have a, I have a yeah. whole separate podcast about box office numbers. And so, yeah, I totally know what you're talking about as well. Um, which, you know, that actually brings me to another question, right? Um, you know, how is it, you know, obviously, right, like when you're writing, right, let's, let's, let's focus on the writing for a second. When you're writing right. a nonfiction, a, a, a fiction story, right, even if it's based on something nonfiction, like Kill Your Darlings yep. or yep. even In the Hollow, right, you have, you know, and, and even here in Campfire, you have like the, fi- the, the fiction elements which you're creating from scratch, right? You have, you, as the person, you come up, like, you come up with the idea in your head and, and put it out onto the page. How does uh, how does that differ from writing quote unquote a documentary, right? Because um, when I, I've done some documentary esque podcasts before, and that was mostly me. I have some questions I'll ask them, but I find the story in their answers, and then post answers, I end up I end up finding the story. Um, do you write anything before, or or how do, how what's your process for quote unquote writing uh, nonfiction versus fiction? I th- you know, it's it. You raise a really interesting question here too around like the role of writing inside documentary, and I think a lot of students confuse thinking like, oh, that you've like written the scene or you somehow put the words in the person's mouth, but instead it kind of works the other way where you, as you said, you interview people and then you identify the key story beats or the selections, mm-hmm. and you sort of sculpt from that material. So it's a little bit more like after the fact instead of before, like a screenplay where you have written all the dialogue. Um, so oof. This campfire was unique in that I had started doing all these interviews like about mid-May, mid-June, late June. I had maybe, I don't know, let's let's say 12 to 15 different interviews with people. And while I hadn't done any of the transcriptions to really understand what the key piece of dialogue were, I knew like, for example, uh, that there was this location on camp called the Green Gate that everybody seemed to mention that there was this threshold that they passed from the regular world into this brigadoon of the campground where they could kind of be whoever they wanted to be and self-express. So in my head, when I sat to write the script and there really was a script for campfire, I was like, Oh, I got to make sure that this guy opens this gate and like has a moment where he thinks about like what's on the other side of this gate. Oh wait, maybe I should just start it at the gate. And then I just had this sense that if I went through the documentary material, which I ended up doing, I would find some linkage, you know, and it turned out to be the campground administrator crying as he talked about how important the great gate was to him and to the people that he knew. And I was like, I got to put this in. So part finding those linkages was really the art form of the edit. I'll say one more thing too, in the script. Well, let me back up even further. When I used to go to the campground just on my own to have fun and like drink beer and and meet people, make friends. Make campfires. Yeah, exactly. There's a place at the, uh, in the campground called the Memorial garden. Right. And it was one of my favorite places. It's like a place where it's, where there's uh, uh, kind of a, uh, what am I looking for? Tombstones and remembrances and people have definitely sprinkled ashes there of the people that have that have gone there and, and people's lovers and partners who have died. Uh, there are many names there from the AIDS era who died, who would go there as a kind of refuge from the city, but then ended up dying. And it just was a very meaningful place. It's like, a, you know, it's a cemetery in the middle of this party, party campground. So when I was writing the film, the screenplay, I was like, I got to set something there because I, I really believe in it. The script that I wrote, Carl is taken there by this uh, other campground, uh, you know, a guy, a perm, as I call him. But in the script, I was like, I, I don't think Carl's ready to go to this campground. I think that seems like, sorry, not campground, cemetery. That seems a little bit too high stakes, like emotionally for him. Well, then when we got there and the actors who are both gay men were like, 
I'm not going to stop here. I'm going into this cemetery. Like this character would need to do that. They, they spoke as human beings, right? Like both as the character and as gay people. So then he walks into the car, the character Carl walks into the camp, into the cemetery. And that becomes in a way the crescendo of the movie, because you start to get this sense of like the history of loss that's happened here. And that feeling of the past kind of emerging into the present anyway. So to answer your question, there is this like, how to put it, like symbiotic relationship between listening to the world, kind of thinking about what people have said, how that relates to maybe the story that I want to tell. So when I wrote the screenplay, it was very much inflected with the stories, but not like verbatim, just, oh, those two naked guys that I interviewed, they seemed like they really, they met there, they fell in love there. Well, that's kind of what Carl wants. So I feel like I'm going to have to put them in this somewhere. So I'll just have them walk around. And, um, and we'll put them in the background and then we'll, maybe they'll say something and they did. And then you had to just be open to the experience and the documentary experience of the making. That's the last part where let's see where the story goes. If this character does say yes, instead of no. And I'm proud of what happened because thank God I, I, it gave me a climax in a way that I didn't have otherwise. Yeah. It sounds almost like what they say directors are like, you know, trust your actors, right? Let the actors improv a little bit to some degree, which in a way probably maybe is, is more, more similar to what the, uh, what the, uh, what writers do, right. With what document documentary writers do, where they like go again, let the, let the interviews lead, whatever the narrative you want to craft from the interviews. Oh man, completely. I, I, one of the great privileges of working with good actors, you know, and you just see where their mind goes. They know the characters better than, than I do. Um, there was a moment in the script, in the, in the script where like it was a party and we have, and Carl meets this other guy who's like a member of the campground. And I wrote some dialogue for these two guys, you know, kind of hitting it off. Maybe there's a little spark there, but you know, that's always different between two people, especially when you cast somebody. And so the actor that I cast, who was a non-actor, by the way, George Hawksworth uh, loved the experience of being in the film. He came up with all these great one-liners about like, you know, how you might flirt with somebody. And so I put every single one of those in there and it just, it, I feel kind of proud of the way that it came together because it you can really it feels alive on screen you know you're watching two people who are just human beings and they're kind of into each other and that's what you get yeah it felt authentic for sure and you, yeah. again your 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 choice of doing the mix of documentary and uh non and fiction right kind of informing each other i think is also a benefit right it lets you write a more compelling script i think as a result I hope so. I mean, this German woman said she was super irritated by it, but again, I'm not sure she meant irritated. You know, I, I will say one thing, given that we're on this death race podcast, I do feel like the Academy categories of documentary and live action are very strict. So I knew that even though our film was lucky enough to be, you know, I submitted it to the Academy portal. We won a prize at the Provincetown Film Festival. So we were able to do that. Like it gave us, we were up for Oscar cont yeah. contention. Yeah. But I always knew that I was like, there's no way this is going to go any further because they want really strict, like live action. This is a total script that was produced or this is a documentary which was not written. And so anyway, so I didn't have much hope for it, but but it was still it was fun. It was a great honor. I'm excited yeah. to see what what they do choose. Yeah, for sure. And then, you know, last question, you know, because we're, we're a little bit over half an hour now. I um, okay, don't sure. want to take up too much time, but um this is the last question about representation, right? So obviously, right, a lot of your films, a lot of your projects, you know, deal with LGBTQ themes. They've been submitted. They've won awards at various LGBT film festivals or at film festivals for LGBTQ uh, representation. I myself, I, I'm, I'm Asian American, right? And so with the rise of Asian American cinema, I've been thinking a lot about, hey, like, I want to have like there's this there's almost like rep. I, I, it's called I've heard it called rep sweats. Where like you want to rep like represent for a film that's you know supporting for in my case asian americans it might not be the best film right and mm. you know what's your i guess i guess what, what i'm getting at is 
at what point, right, do you want your film, do you want your films to always be seen as LGBTQ themed, uh, themed films? Mm. Or do you want to have films that are um, just good films, right? I'm also thinking, for example, American Fiction. I don't know if you've seen that yet. No, um, I want to. The, the question there, right, for that, that Monk, the main character in the film faces is, I'm an African-American writer, but I write nothing about the African-American ex- experience, but I still get put in African-American studies in the, in the, in the uh, bookstore, right? So where do you think, you know, the, there's obviously importance in representation, but also yeah. not wanting to be pigeonholed to this specific kind of work. Oh, yeah. what, what are your thoughts on that, specifically for, I guess, the LGBTQ it's, kind it's of thing? It's really... It's funny. I, I think about it. Sometimes I think about it a lot. And other times I find myself not thinking about it at all. I have found that I've written a lot of different things in my life, some of which are very autobiographically inflected, some of which are more aligned with that LGBT identity because I'm a gay person, or they have nothing to do with that. And the stuff that seems to have traction or the stuff that people like still like want to think about or whatever has gone to film festivals is the stuff that has this LGBT focus. Um and when I made Campfire, in my head, I thought, I really want to play straight film festivals because there are a number of gay and lesbian film festivals, which are really awesome, you know, Outfest or Inside Out. And then there's places like the Cleveland Film Festival or Aspen or uh, Sundance that don't have an LGBT focus particularly. And that seemed to be what I targeted. And the truth is, the film did have a certain life at what I would call straight or like non-identity driven film festivals like Cleveland, where it premiered. But many of the gay film festivals that I've loved and I've gone to many times didn't accept it. Uh, it didn't play at Outfest. It didn't play at Inside Out. I, and I think it's because the movie is about, if I had to guess, if I was being really cynical, the movie is about like middle age, older middle age, gay male issues, which to many programmers who are younger, probably a lot of them are pretty intersectional in terms of identity. Trans issues are really the like like in their moment right now, and so a lot of film festivals I think leaned into those kinds of narratives. People exploring gender nonconforming identities, and a masculinist, you know, middle aged man might seem really kind of uh, how to put it, you know, a little older or dated as a as a story exploration. Um, so at the moment, I'm working on a script that has like a it basically is like a crime thriller. In a, it's a genre I love. Blue Ruins, one of my favorite films. I love that kind of really pulpy, intense, streamlined kind of narrative, regional, mm-hmm. like one false move might be another example, if you know that one. Mm-hmm. And that has nothing to do with LGBT identity at all. If anything, it's about my single mom. Um, and the, the main character is a middle-aged woman who's a single parent. And so I'm kind of like channeling this autobiographical experience. And maybe that's where I'd leave it is that I just find myself drawn to Uh, films and filmmakers who have some autobiographical or personal tether to their material. I think we all know that there are a lot of films and filmmakers who are just in the game and know how to get access to money, but there's no really nothing connecting them to their material. Um, And, uh, and then there's some filmmakers who can make amazing films that have no personal connection to it. Like, I don't think Nomadland, I don't think Chloe Zhao is knows much about the life of a middle-aged woman in the American West living out of an RV, but she's an amazing empath. And you've seen that from her other movies, like the writer, so, uh, so I guess I'm trying to do, I'm trying to live in a, or trying to write from a personal autobiographical perspective in the most exciting and expansive way possible, and also be as empathetic as possible. And this is the world I live in. I live in a kind of rural area. So I'm listening to these stories and these are the ones that, that compel me. It will influence you. And you know, those yeah. are stories that you're equipped to tell. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. That's the idea. 
Yeah. Well, you know, it's been a pleasure, Austin. Um, again, I loved watching Campfire. I loved watching all of your sword films and, and Kill My Darling. So um, definitely recommend, you know, not just watching Campfire, but you know, all the other stuff. Kill My Kill Your Darling is uh, on HBO Max. Uh, I watched this watch it this morning. That's um, right. I know. Amazing. So, yeah, so definitely go check those out if you're if you're listening to this. But uh, thank you once again for for uh, the interview. Thank you again for submitting to the uh, the Death Race Film Festival, and uh, you know, looking forward to seeing your next projects come out in the future. Fantastic, Paolo. Thank you. I really appreciate you doing this interview. Of course, thank you.